Several councils in the UK are on the verge of bankruptcy due to loss of funding, overspending, overstretched services and failed innovative initiatives. As a consequence, they are increasing council tax or reducing public services to deal with financial strain. Unsurprisingly, the use of private enforcement agents to recover such tax and other fines is also intensifying. A bankrupt Birmingham council has seen a 500% rise in referrals to enforcement agents between 2022 and 2023, revealed under a Freedom of Information request. Welcome to Debt Talk Podcast with me as your host, Ripon Ray. You may have guessed that this time I'm speaking about council finance, tax and debt recovery. To navigate such an important topic, I have Helen Ghani, um, Debt Advice Manager of Christian Against Poverty, Russell Hamlin Boone, Chief Executive Officer of Civil Enforcement Association, and finally Chris Nichols, Chief Executive Officer of the recently formed Enforcement Conduct Board. My panellists are also to provide top tips to assist listeners with their journey. Before we get to the details of today's subject, let me get Helen from Christian Against Poverty to talk about councils and their finances from the perspective of the debt advice sector. Helen, you worked on behalf of your clients who have unimaginable debts, one of which is often council tax, and you offer your service nationwide through the UK churches. Since the introduction of the welfare reform, what has have you seen uh, and the types of measures that local council have taken to recover council tax? And what sort of cases have your debt advisors seen in terms of council tax recovery? Thanks, Ripon. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me on. So one of the impacts we've seen is that each council is able to set their own council tax reduction scheme. So completely dependent on how generous that is, impacts the amount of support a universal credit claimant can apply for, which obviously then has a direct impact on how affordable people on lower incomes will find their council tax bill. So we're increasingly seeing councils move to demanding the full year's tax amount rather than allowing a resident to simply catch up on the missed instalment, which does mean they're moving to enforcement a lot quicker. The increase in cost of living, accompanied by the lack of inflation-linked increases in benefits, has left so many people struggling to make ends meet, even without having to pay the cost of the enforcement agency fees on top of any missed payments. So in 2021, 28% of our new clients came to us with council tax debt. And that jumped to 60% in 2022, so over doubled, um, potentially as a direct result of the £20 uplift ending in September 21. And some councils are starting to move away from using enforcement agents entirely. So, you know, we're just watching to see how that's going to develop with, with a lot of interest. So in terms of your advisors finding ways to deal with councils' recovery, how do they do it? And are the councils acting the same before it gets to the magistrate court or are they taking other measures? Well, we find that recovery strategies are really varying from council to council. A few are working really hard to support people in financial difficulties. Others can push back very hard on the financial statements that we send and challenge us on living costs that we put down for the clients. So, you know, we left feeling that we have to justify everything, like allowing our clients money in their budgets for birthday gifts, hairdressing, things like that. 
so that they can take part in society and look after their well-being. Uh, recently, we were challenged on a budget where we had to reduce the client's spending in all areas to make the budget balance and meet the absolute minimum payments we could offer creditors. His budget for toiletries was reduced to one penny a month just to try and make the budget balance. And we received an email from the recovery team demanding £35 a month as an arrears payment. And the email suggested it should be easy to find because his expenditure wasn't very high. And it's like, well, no, his expenditure isn't high because he just doesn't have the money to, to pay for, for toiletries and things like clothing and hairdressing was down to a penny a month as well. So it's pretty shocking to see a demand that for that much money when the financial statement clearly showed he couldn't afford it. So we are finding that uh, it's a demand for money rather than a, um, a conversation about what is affordable. You talked about demands for money rather than a conversation. And also you've also talked about how there's been an increase uh, in recovery, mm. nevertheless. But have you seen a repeated default by residents due to uh, uh, um, debts being added up? Yeah, yeah. So I th the numbers do seem to suggest that people are struggling more and more to pay their council tax bills. And with councils often like passing the debt out to enforcement of just two missed instalments, the compliance fees mean that the debts escalate really quickly, meaning the resident is unlikely or more unlikely to be able to meet the current year's bill as well. Um, over half of the people that we work with, half our clients, have what we call a deficit budget. I mean, I call them broken budgets. And it means that their income is just not enough to service their priority bills, such as rent, council tax, utilities, and so on, and be able to keep, feed their family and keep the house warm and lit over winter. It, it's an impossible choice. Do you pay your council tax or do you feed your kids? It, it's not even a choice. So, of course, in those cases, the debts are going to pile up. Inevitably, there are challenges for low-income household with dealing with enforcement agents. And we have Russell who can talk about it later on. But um, what has been your experience in dealing with enforcement agents? On the whole, enforcement agencies are working really well with councils when it comes to helping and supporting vulnerable people they come across. They're doing what they can to make sure if it's the right thing to send the case back to the council, they do. And councils are getting better at using the data they have and not sending over cases for vulnerable people. But there's still loads to do on both sides for people who are on low incomes who don't receive benefits. And we're still finding unrealistic demands for repayment plans that clients simply can't meet, at least not without sacrificing meals or not putting the heating on. For example, recently, we sent an offer of repayment, uh, but we got uh, the response back from the enforcement agency that they were demanding £95 a month to stop further action. Now, this client had a well-documented vulnerability and suicidal ideation. We were applying for bankruptcy, so we asked for a 90-day hold just to allow us to do that. And it was declined, and the demand for £95 was sent instead. And, I mean, that is far from the ideal outcome. I have to say, for balance, a lot of enforcement agencies are getting so good now at taking vulnerable people out of the normal process like that but it's not always the case. And this poor gentleman came up, up against it. I mean, you may have noticed that now uh, many enforcement agents are using body camera. Now, mm. do you think that is or has made any difference whatsoever? I think it does offer a degree of security for the client, the agency, and the person who is in the subject of the enforcement action. 
because it's knowing that there's another level of accountability. But what I'm not sure is that people who are receiving visits know that they've got the right to view the footage under GDPR. And all they need to do is email the enforcement agency to ask. So I'd like to see that information being passed to residents when they're visited to reassure them that they can see this back at, you know, when they ask. Helen, I might as well be frank with you. Are you still seeing Bailey's behaving badly or have we come to a happy ending situation in the world of council tax recovery? Well, I don't know if we'll ever come to a happy ending for everybody, but it is a mixed bag. Um, obviously, in our role of helping some of the most vulnerable people in the UK with the problem of debt, we do hear a lot of stories, some of it demonstrating really poor behaviour, but also some of it really inspiring. Uh, we had a client who, they were visited for an agent. She met him at the door, said she got absolutely no money, nothing worth taking, but invited him in for a cup of tea anyway because it was lashing it down with rain and it was freezing cold. And the agent actually said to us, please don't ask me in. Don't ask me to come in. I can't. But here, here is the number of a, a charity that can help and passed on our number. We've also had examples of enforcement agents calling us from the home that they've entered, looking around, and, and then they call us on behalf of the client and pass the phone over so they can speak to us and see if we can arrange an appointment with them. So it's not all bad. I know there's a really bad um, reputation and some bad stories out there about poor behaviour. But like I said, it's a mixed bag. It's not all bad. It's just not uniformly good yet. Um, but when I speak to people in the industry, there is a strong desire to get it right, to change assumptions, remove the fear of enforcement agencies. And it's really great when I connect with people who work in the industry who are passionate about helping people. And they are. It's really encouraging. What is your thought on council and enforcement agent not accepting standard financial statement, even if the client can't afford to pay uh, for the debts? I think my first thought, um, my major thought is why? Why are we not getting this accepted? Especially when um, vulnerability and deficit budgets are such a concern for the people I get to meet. They're saying all the right things. I'm hearing great work and policies coming into place. But we do still find our offers being rejected. We had one recently where the client had a, a significantly reduced financial statement. We were only budgeting £14 a week for groceries and essentially nothing for anything other than their, their fixed expenditure. So when we sent an offer of payment, the enforcement team responded to our offer simply saying they'll accept £37. And the maximum we were able to offer was 18 we challenged it back and they stated that the minimum they could accept for personal benefits was £30. And, and that was it. There was no budging them. So I guess my thoughts are treat each case individually. Look at the financial statement, not just the offer, but look where the cuts have had to be made to this person's expenditure to be able to make that offer. You know, use the standard financial statement as a whole, the way it's been designed. Because, yes, it does allow for, for what a lot of people... Uh, in recovery and enforcement uh, industries, think as, as non-essential expenditure, such as hairdressing, such as gifts. Now, if you've ever had to tell your child that they can't go to a birthday party that all their friends are going to because you can't afford a present, then you'll understand why we, why we try and put money into all of those so-called non-essential spending areas to make sure that you can still take part in society, even though you do have debts that need managing. Debt and poverty is not just about surviving and pay, repaying your debt. You still need to be able to thrive and have a, you know, a good 
life alongside of it as well. Several councils have considered the measures to reintroduce council tax support because the cost of recovery appears to be very high. What is your thought on that? Well, it's not something I've heard about myself, but if that is the case, then I and CAP would most likely be in, in support of it. I mean, any measures that can relieve the pressure people on low incomes are under will be welcomed. Imagine each council um, probably have to measure up the cost of recovery versus the cost of giving full benefits. So again, it depends on the generosity of your local council. If anything, uh, I think we just want a consistent approach by councils so that it's not a bit of a lottery, depending on where you live, it's depending on whether you get the benefit or not. And finally, um, Helen, is the increase in recovery solely connected with a backlog uh, from the pandemic or is there a genuine desire to recover to keep the struggling councils afloat? Well, we can't ignore the fact that we've been in a cost of living crisis for two years now, and that is going to make a massive impact on people's ability to sustain payments. And it has hit councils hard as well. Obviously, they need to keep the funding coming in to prevent bankruptcy, which we're seeing become almost common now amongst local authorities. And we know that recovering this council tax payments is necessary. Enforcement action is needed for some people. But we want to make sure we're taking care and compassion towards people who are subject to recovery and enforcement. And we look to the industry to make sure they are upholding and increasing standards. Thank you, Helen. Um, let me get Russell from the Civil Enforcement Association into the conversation. Um, Russell, Sidia Civil Enforcement Association represents over 95% of the non-high court civil enforcement sector. What is your take on Birmingham Council increasing the use of enforcement agents by 500%? Birmingham City Council issued a Section 114 notice. That effectively means that it's got extreme restrictions on its spending. And that was because in June last year, it was discovered that £760 million was owed for a historic equal pay settlement. There'd been an IT project that had gone over budget and it left the council with a hold in its budget of £87 million. And there are sem several similar councils in similar financial straits, including my own local council, Somerset, that's got a, a deficit budget of £100 million. And we have to remember that in England and Wales, there's £5.5 billion of uncollected council tax arrears. Much of that is a backlog from the pandemic. And we worked with local authorities to suspend all recovery action during the pandemic. There were delays in the court process. People took payment holidays that were offered by councils, recognising the challenges people were facing. And they haven't yet caught up with their arrears. And that's the reason that uh, Birmingham has got an increase in the use of enforcement agents. They're playing catch up. They're trying to recover some of this money that's owed to them that they gave people holidays for um, and maximising their revenue in order to pay for their local services. Alongside that, back in 2013, the government scrapped the national council tax benefit scheme and allowed individual councils to set their own levels of council tax reduction. And that meant many people who'd never paid their council tax, had to pay council tax before, having to pay some or all of their council tax. And despite all of that, there are still over a third of households on some form of council tax reduction scheme, so not paying 100% of council tax. So we had a, we had a, with the, with the backlog and the pandemic uh, and the 
the cuts through to benefits, we had a kind of perfect storm. And now we're in a situation where the work of enforcement agents is essential to help councils balance their statutory obligations of recovering local taxation to fund local services, while at the same time identifying and supporting vulnerable people who are going to depend on those services now and in the future. I mean, you talked about um, the necessity of councils using enforcement agents, but in terms of obtaining business from local councils, how does an enforcement agent goes about um, obtaining the business or is it through tendering or is there anything else? Yeah, local authority contracts are awarded through open competition and enforcement firms compete in a bidding process to, to match best the council's contractual requirements. Is there any um, service level agreement with parties? There is an element of delivering based on results. Isn't there inevitable tension between recovery of debt and those who are unable to pay? Local councils don't pay a commission to enforcement agents in the way that, say, debt collection agencies charge fees and commission. And while obviously the collection rate is important to councils for their own revenue, they have other performance measures in the service level agreements. Things like customer experience and satisfaction. Firms have to deliver a low level of complaints. They have to demonstrate what support they're offering for vulnerable people. And they have to um, measure the cases that are collected without a visit. All of those things are important measures for councils when they're awarding contracts. Uh, as, you know, Helen talked about um, a, a sort of a national schemes. We have to recognise that debt collection rates are going to vary depending on the social demographics of an area where in some cases much of the, the, the debt is historic and is difficult to collect. And that can impact on the percentage of debts that can be recovered without a visit, particularly in areas of deprivation. What's more important is where we have more flexibility, in our, which is in our support of vulnerable people. And uh, as Helen said, there have been some really good examples. Civia members have got fully trained welfare teams or individuals who are dedicated to identifying and supporting vulnerable, vulnerable people who are in genuine financial hardship. And these teams have got uh, get additional training and support uh, in, individuals are empowered to make decisions about individual cases and where <clears throat> individuals who are uh, are identified as potentially vulnerable, they can be supported and receive additional communication with enhanced uh, and tailored signposting links to internal welfare teams, external debt advice, things like Christian, places like Christians Against Poverty where it's appropriate. And we work very closely with the debt advice sector to provide that service. Um, Citizen Advice recently published a report on enforcement agents, which you were very critical of. Uh, what was your reason for being critical? Um, look, I wrote to Claire Moriarty, the chief executive of Citizen's Advice, last March. I'm still waiting for a response, but I put my letter in the public domain so that everyone can read why I was concerned. So far, I've only had holding emails and I'm hopeful maybe before the year's out, I'll get a, a reply. So my main issue is the allegation that was made that one in three enforcement visits broke the rules um, and, and enforcement agents were breaking the rules in their visits. Now, that's a serious allegation. That's about people's jobs. And it's been repeated in the press and by MPs. Even last week in a select committee hearing in the House of Commons, it was dragged up again. And Citizens Advice has failed to provide any evidence. 
They know that we require all our members to, to be equipped with body one video. We've talked about it earlier and we can prove whether an agent is complying with the rules. There's no robust evidence from citizens' advice that enforcement agents are breaking what are highly prescriptive regulations. And the nature of those regulations means that it's extremely difficult for enforcement agents to break the rules undetected. I accept that by definition, enforcement means entering a property and potentially taking control of goods. And how this can be legally executed is set out in great detail in the Taking Control of Goods Regulations 2014. However, I also accept that people may not be aware of the agent's rights and that those who were surveyed by Citizens Advice might have commented on their dislike of the rules rather than any genuine evidence of agents breaking those rules. We know that people sometimes misinterpret agents when they threaten to clamp vehicles or enter their property. Those are not threats. They are statements of fact in which enforcement agents are explaining to people the powers they have to undertake under a legal process. And it's difficult to argue with video evidence. And it's why many complaints that would have been one person's word against another can be reviewed and judged based on irrefutable evidence. Now, that one in three claim is great for reinforcing journalists and politicians' images of bailiffs, but it's irresponsible scaremongering just to, to get a bit of publicity and grab some head headlines. I've asked citizens' advice for the methodology. I've asked them how many of those people who were surveyed had actually been in contact with an enforcement agent, and how long ago was that? They couldn't even answer those basic questions. More importantly, we have proactively designed and funded an independent oversight body to look at our work to ensure that we work to the highest standards. The Enforcement Conduct Board is strongly evidence-based and very proud of that fact. And I would expect any allegations of rule breaking, rather than to be bandied around with no evidence in uh, you know newspaper headlines and to MPs, to be reported to the Enforcement Conduct Board. Come on, stand up. Let's see the evidence. Take it to sit to 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 um, the Enforcement Conduct Board and allow them to investigate. As far as I know, citizens' advice have not reported anything, and that just suggests to me they're not confident. They've got strong evidence to present other than the usual anecdotes. Russell, they're not here to defend themselves. However, do you think it appears to be uh, impartial and transparent if a membership organisation that represents civil enforcement sector investigates the complaints of their civil enforcement officers? Yes, absolutely. Most regulatory organisations like Ofgem or the Financial Conduct Authority get funding from the firms that they supervise. And provided there's strong governance, and as I've said, the ECB is fiercely independent, it's reasonable that the industry should cover those costs. The alternative would be taxpayers paying through their council tax, and that would be much less fair. Have you noticed any major change since the introduction of enforcement officers wearing video and the number of complaints where they have increased or decreased since? Yeah, well, I mentioned how complaints can be reviewed in detail and compared to the facts as filmed by enforcement agents. And complaint levels remain low because the rules are very clear and enforcement firms resolve any issues quickly. And to people's satisfaction, they've got uh, standards, that, that metrics that they have to meet for as part of their council contracts to do that. Um, and they can't afford to have too many complaints so they've got to be working to the best to that to the highest standards what we have seen 
since the pandemic, which I think is really significant, important, and probably uh, reflects what's going on in other sectors, is how anyone who deals with the public is at greater risk. We're working with the police crime unit and the British Parking Association to highlight what we're calling our safer enforcement campaign, which is just um, making sure that we've got as much protection in, in place as possible for our enforcement agents to act safely in an environment where society has become less compliant and less responsive to people in positions of authority and more feels more empowered to challenge individuals, including through violence and abuse, whether that's enforcement agents on the doorstep or our, um, our agents in our, in our contact centres. And it's a worrying trend. Um, you believe that there were regulations to deal with enforcement agents. In fact, you emphasised that last time you were here, you also mentioned it earlier on. We just need to implement them. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, that's not exactly what I said or what I meant. My issue is is in two parts. First, the regulations and standards were written 10 years ago and they don't reflect modern enforcement practices. They're basic and simplistic and people with limited knowledge base their understanding of our work on what they read in the standards. Secondly, there's no independent voice to speak to the truth. I'm going to say things about my industry and people will say, well, you would say that because they pay you. The debt and advice sector are going to say things about the industry which because they see things through a, you know, a narrow prism of, of, of a certain group of people. So we're constantly defending ourselves against criticism based on anecdotes, some of which predate the 2014 regulations. Now, we've addressed both of these issues by supporting the establishment of independent oversight in the Enforcement Conduct Board. And we'll be working with the ECB and the Ministry of Justice to draft new national standards, which do more accurately reflect the work that we do and how we do it. So, for example, We've introduced um, a pre-visit compliance stage, and this is a voluntary action, a proactive action, working with councils where enforcement agents are paying visits to people or they're contacting people, not to take control of goods, just to try to understand what their financial situation is, what their circumstances are, and why they failed to respond to the many letters emails, calls, whatever it might be, the, the various attempts to make contact with people. And that um, pre-compliance pre stage is not funded, it's not part of the official regulation, so there's no fee applied to that stage. So there's a cost to firms, but it's a huge benefit to councils, because during that stage, you can engage with people in debt, you can identify their vulnerabilities, you can look at their income and expenditure, you can find ways to maximise their income, look and see whether there are benefits they're not claiming, and ensure that if we do set up repayment plans, they are uh, sustainable. There's an argument that says that, that you know we'll, we'll never have affordable repayment plans because it's a priority debt. We can't allow people to pay a pound a month forever <clears throat> because that's not fair on everybody who does pay their, their council tax. It will always be a challenge for people to meet their council tax repayments. And that's how, why we have council tax reduction schemes to make sure that <clears throat> those people who are struggling to pay are supported by the council. Um, and those people who are deliberately not paying are subject to the uh, powers of enforcement. So there's there's a strong economic 
as well as an ethical case for the use of enforcement agents where it's responsible and where we're working in partnership with councils. Thank you, Russell. Um, this is the perfect place, really, for me to get Chris Nichols from the Enfor- Enforcement Conduct Board uh, to get, get involved. Um, Chris, um, on a nutshell, what would the remit of the Enforcement Conduct Board? So the ECB's mission uh, is a simple one. It's to ensure that all those experiencing enforcement action are treated fairly. We kind of technically what we what we're going to do is provide independent oversight of the enforcement sector and we're currently defining the scope of that as including all work under the taking control of goods regulations what it actually means in practice what we're actually going to do we're going to and and, and russell's alluded to this we're going to set standards for enforcement work we're going to monitor compliance the industry's compliance with those standards and of course we'll take action uh, whenever we find instances where those standards have not been met. And then the other sort of key uh, bit that we'll do, thing that we'll do, is we're also going to have a complaints handling function so we can hear and determine complaints uh, when a member of the public believes they've not been treated fairly and they've not been able to resolve this in the first instance by complaining to the enforcement firm. It's not of surprise that initially the Enforcement Conduct Board was funded by members of the Civil Enforcement Association. In what way would the board be independent and impartial from just being a representative of the enforcement against be the representative of vulnerable debtors? I think that's a really important question because it's a it's a fully independent oversight body that this sector really needs to to address. Uh, a gap at the moment in that in that sort of accountability and to ensure that everyone who experiences enforcement action is treated fairly now the ecb is structurally but also culturally independent from the enforcement industry but also from the debt advice sector um we've got a rigorously independent chair and she's appointed an independent board and staff team None of us on the board, none of us in the staff team have come from industry. We come from other independent regulators, public bodies, a a wide range of backgrounds. My own background is in public interest regulation of legal services. Now, now Russell addressed this as well, but the you know the fact that we're funded by industry, I think, is is a red herring. It's it's completely normal for regulated professions and industries to fund the costs of, of regulation, and you know where i come from in legal services lawyers and law firms fund their own independent regulation so i don't think that model has much relevance to our independence and the last the last thing i'd say just you know in terms of in terms of independence is we're supported by um leading debt charities uh, uh, as well as the enforcement industry so so we've got christians against poverty on the call today Christians Against Poverty, Step Change, Money Advice Trust, they're all part of the team that developed the blueprint and they're still active supporters of the ECB. And that's because they recognise and see the need for us and recognise our, our our independence. Speaking of independence, uh, um, how would the board be kept in check to make sure it represents the interest of vulnerable individuals? Uh, I mean, we are clear that one of our key priorities um, is for our new standards of enforcement work to properly address this important issue of vulnerability. Russell 
mention some of the shortcomings of the existing um, uh, Ministry of Justice's national standards. And, and, and in this area, they're particularly inadequate. There is a section on vulnerability, but it's so vague and open to interpretation that it's, it's just not really very helpful. So when we're developing our own standards, which is one of our key work streams, we've been clear that we need to develop a modern and a clear framework on vulnerability that supports consistently fair treatment of uh, vulnerable people. And that's, I think, easier to say than it is to do because it's a very sensitive and a very uh, complex area. So what, we, what we're going to do, the way we're going to approach this is, is a number of ways. Firstly, you know, we're committed and, and, and have made this very clear that we will engage and consult widely on the development of our standards and we want to hear from people from a wide range of perspectives. We're spending lots of time with debt advice uh, organisations and debt advisors, listening to calls, spending time in call centres, and we've got representatives on our working groups and expert groups. Uh, and we're also going to commission some external help to get input from people with lived experience of enforcement action and sort of feed that in uh, to to our to our work in this area and and again this has already come up but there's also some examples of really good practice that i've already come across at enforcement firms at creditors so there's a lot that's happening already as well that we can learn from the other sort of bit of your question you're asking about sort of keeping us uh keeping the ecb in check very good point important to keep us in check i think transparency and accountability are really important for any regulator or, or oversight body so what we're trying to do is put as much information out there as possible on what we're doing why we're doing it and and why we're making the decisions uh, that we're making so that you can all see for yourselves and you can contribute and also challenge us where you think we might have um, might do something differently. No doubt. You, uh, with any regulator, the focus would be on authorization, supervision and enforcement. What do those mean from the perspective of the board? So my my career's all been in regulation and oversight and 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 I agree with you. I think those are those are three key tools that an effective oversight body needs. So taking them kind of one by one, uh, accred our accreditation scheme, the ECB's accreditation scheme, is our answer uh, to authorisation. So to be accredited by the ECB, you need to meet criteria that we set. And that will include adherence to our new standards when they come into force in in the autumn. And we launched accreditation last year and we've got coverage of, of over 95% of the market, which is brilliant. It shows it shows that the enforcement industry is is up for this, is 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 ready for 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 accreditation, is ready for oversight. And and in practice, what we hope is that you'll need to be accredited by us in order to thrive in the market because creditors uh, and some of the large national creditors are increasingly coming out and saying they will only work with firms who are ECB accredited. So that, that's how you sort of create the initial framework, the initial accountability. But then there's a there's a huge gap at the moment or, or, or pre-ECB is that no one's doing any sort of supervision or or, or independent supervision and proactive monitoring of, of, of what's going on out there. And and we will fill that gap. So so, you know, we'll be actively monitoring the market 
looking at whether there's any issues when they're arising, looking to sort of swiftly uh, respond to those. The, the detail of how we do that, the detail of our approach to supervision and monitoring is something we're developing um, over during the year. And we're looking to, to, to start doing that, to start actually operationalizing it from the autumn. But, you know, there's a lot of intelligence sources out there that we want to tap into. And just to give a little flavour, again, a theme that's come up, but some of the case notes from debt advisors where they come across something that they are concerned about, we're already receiving those on a monthly basis from some fund. And that's really good to give us a sense of what the issues that we might look for are, what look for are. And, and then the last bit, enforcement, you know, in my view, enforcement should always be reserved only for the most sort of serious or persistent non-compliance is never something you should resort to uh, in the first instance. And, and, and so you'd hope that it would be very rare, but it's essential that you have those powers and that you do deploy them where needed. So we'll be developing, we've, we've already developed some, but we'll be developing a wider suite of all this sort of usual enforcement interventions you'd expect a body like us to have. Board has been functioning for a few years now, and how are we to see the board fully functioning? And are there financial, legal, or parliamentary issues that we need to consider before it is fully functioning to properly regulate the enforcement market? Last, you say we've been functioning for a couple of years. I mean, last year was our first first kind of op fully operational year. So I came on board 10 months ago in March last year. And when I did, I was the first member of kind of executive staff. And through the through the course of the year, um, we brought in a team, uh, a team now. And we're currently working hard, full steam ahead to launch and new standards and to start proactive monitoring and supervision that I've talked about from autumn this year. We're also developing our complaints handling process, and that should become operational shortly afterwards or around the same time. So by the end of this year, by the end of 2024, we'll be doing all the core things that we were set up to do. And I'm confident that people will really start to feel the benefits of independent oversight in this area. Now, all of this we're doing and, and, and we'll achieve without having statutory powers. And, and and that model, I believe, will work because we've got a lot of industry and we've got 90, over 95% coverage of the market. And as I said, we've got creditors making sure that being accredited by the ECB isn't a nice to have. It's a business imperative. If you want to thrive in this market, you want to be accredited. You need to be accredited. And equally, if you lose your accreditation, if we take it away or if you walk away, it will be harder for you to survive in the market. So, you know, we don't have statutory powers, but we do have teeth. We will have influence and and we will bring about change. All of that said, um, we do believe um, that giving ECB some targeted statutory powers would enable us to be kind of swifter, more efficient in pursuing our mission. So when the Ministry of Justice conducts its review this year of whether the ECB should have statutory powers, we will be saying that we think um, some, some fairly limited targeted powers will be a proportionate um, way to give us those that ability to be swifter and more efficient in pursuing our mission whilst maintaining our independence and our sort of fleet of foot. 
but, but, but what we have to remember is even if we and, and I think others agree, and I think there's lots who, who, who share that view, if we can persuade government to do that, to give us those targeted statutory powers, it's still going to take a while to bring that in. And what we can't do, I don't think any of us can afford to do, is pause and wait for that. There's so much we can do with this model, and we have to continue to do that and to drive change in the meantime while separately arguing for and hoping that some statutory powers come further down the line. I mean, from your analysis of the enforcement sector, where do we need to improve to make the enforcement sector fit for purpose? To work out what improvements are needed, I think first we need to have a clear understanding of what we should all expect from modern and fair enforcement. And that's exactly what we're seeking to do in developing our new standards for enforcement work. So that, that's one thing you need. You then need to do research, supervision, monitoring, as I've talked about, to assess how often, when, and how those standards um, are, are or are not being complied with. Again, that's, that's in train. So, so that's a kind of long way of saying that at the moment, I'm not in a position to say on the basis of any evidence where the specific improvements are needed. But we soon will be, and uh, and when we are, we will share that, um, and we will provide what we hope is a common evidence base, um, so that everyone can have a sort of similar understanding on what's happening and where improvements might be needed. Um, enforcement system, no doubt, and I think uh, everyone's been talking about it in a sense of being quite complicated. Will the ECB be looking to simplify it by bringing, by bringing all the enforcement agents, both high court and civil enforcement and other enforcement into one umbrella for the purpose of authorization, supervision and enforcement? So, so it, it is quite complicated. Uh complicated and i've kind of got first-hand experience of that because i when i started at the ecb 10 months ago i was i was new to the area so i've kind of gone through that myself the the ecb's oversight will cover civil and high court enforcement so while the processes and the powers are slightly different if you are experiencing enforcement action from either high court or civil the oversight the protection will be the same so, so, so that should help. Before working for the board, you worked for the Bar Standards Board, where you oversee the policy aspect of the conduct of barristers in England and Wales. What experience would you bring here? You, you mentioned the Bar Standards Board, which was a was particularly notable thing. But I've got over 15 years experience of uh, independent regulation. And, and what, what all of my previous roles have focused on is developing new approaches and frameworks that really try and put the public interest at the heart of oversight and at the heart of regulation. I think in, in doing that, I've become kind of acutely aware that a good regulator, a good oversight body needs to balance a wide range of different issues to make the best possible decisions. And if you're going to do that effectively, you need to listen, you've got to engage openly and transparently with a wide range of voices and a wide range of perspectives on, on on different issues. And that learning, that's what I'm trying to bring to the ECB. And, you know, some of your listeners will probably have heard me make this, make this point at various conferences, but, but it's important to say it again, you, the ECB will not always do exactly as the debt advice sector, as the enforcement industry, as creditors, or as any other stakeholder 
thinks we would. It's not realistic, it's not practical to expect us to. But what the commitment I do want to make is that what we will always do is to engage and to listen uh, with an open mind, not shy away from difficult conversations, and to explain how we've taken those different views and your views into account and why we've made the decisions that we have. And finally, Chris, what is the next step for the board? So we'll shortly be publishing a business plan for the year ahead. So so look out for that and please do get in touch and, con- and, and respond and contribute and let us know what you're thinking. But that will set out in kind of detail what we're planning to do uh, over the coming years. But 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 just briefly for your listeners, I think there there's sort of five areas I'd I'd stress. The first is we're very excited about some research that will shortly be in the field, looking at a large sample of body worn video and looking at you know how often from a thousand odd cases um, we do encounter issues and, and and where there are issues, what those are, so to, we can put out there. Uh, uh, a sort of starting baseline view on 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 how prevalent problems are um i've talked a lot about development of our standards um development of our kind of operational oversight and supervision both of those things due to come in uh, in the autumn similarly developing our complaints handling process and then in the background sort of supporting all of that this year we're also going to be building the team so there's there's five of us at the moment but we're going to be growing this year to bring on new roles to handle the complaints to to do the sort of audits and and, and supervision as well thank you chris um for those who are listening to that talk a podcast i want to share your experience i want to hear a subject of your choice you can get in touch with me at ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com or on twitter your doctor debt let me go back to my panel members who are to provide debt talk listeners with top tips on today's subject on the question of council finance tax and debt recovery let me start with Helen Garney, Advice Manager of Christian Against Poverty. I did listen to a couple of episodes in preparation of coming on today and I kind of got the vibe that your audience is probably more made up of people in the debt advice or recovery industry rather than people who are are struggling with their own finances. So the thing I want to say is if you are in the world of debt advice, keep going. You're doing an amazing job. It's quite tough you're hearing some difficult calls right now but everything you do is valued and is very very much needed there's nine million people estimated who are would benefit from free debt advice so if you are doing that thank you you are fantastic Um, and if you are in that sort of like venn diagram where it intersects of working in the debt or the advice industry or recovery industry and you are having financial difficulties, I would say the one and only top tip is get some advice and get some free advice. Make sure you don't pay for it. There's some really amazing free debt advice agencies out there. Obviously, Christians Against Poverty is one. Um, You can always call and see if we can help, but definitely get advice. And thank you for the work you're doing. Let me move to Russell from Civil Enforcement Association. I think that um, what we have to do is... um, focus on the shared objectives that we have, the success we had in designing the Enforcement Conduct Board, collaborating with the debt advice sector um, and interested parties 
was because we were working on where the working in the common ground um and this is it's a very um, can be a very emotive topic and we need to kind of set aside the emotion and focus on the practicalities focus on um the outcomes here and the outcome is about uh, fair enforcement it's about supporting councils who are under immense strain at the moment following the pandemic with the economic uh, crisis that we've got going on and so that means that we have to start to communicate better communicate in terms of um that you know it's okay to disagree but we need to disagree gracefully um and and, and understanding each other's positions um but also we need to communicate our um the context in which we're working you know i try to explain to people you, you might not like what we're doing but actually it's really important what we're doing and you might be informed by the you know sort of misinformation and, and inaccuracy and, and not understanding the depth as chris mentioned it's really complex it's not straightforward um when you get into the nitty-gritty of it so I think it's really important that we're communicating with each other, but we're also communicating with more widely in what we're doing and why we're doing it. So that in this world where everybody's got to have an opinion and you've got to be either fall on, on one side or another side, actually it's the grey area in which we need to focus. Finally, Chris Nichols from the Enforcement Conduct Board. Building on that, I think there is change coming. We 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 now have an independent, impartial organization to bring in a new model and take a view on these things but that will only well that will be as good as we all make it and as as i've sort of emphasized we we want we need people to contribute their different perspectives their advice their views and and all of that will be useful to us so i guess there is there is a there is a sort of new context in this area. There is a new avenue to contribute your views and to help us to build something really meaningful and enduring that can really make sure that we can all have confidence that fairness is at the heart of this very important and very sensitive work. Thank you. Um, I'm very grateful to my panel members for giving their precious time on the following subject, council finance, tax and debt recovery. Uh, no doubt this subject is very, very uh, emotive and charged. Um, debt Talk podcast would uh, not have been successful without um, their contributions and sharing their valuable knowledge, really. My next Debt Talk podcast is on consumer duty revisited and the debt sector. Um, thank you for listening to Debt Talk with me as your host, Ripon Ray.